In this week's Parsha, we have a repeat of some of the details of the making of the Mishkan, but there are also additional references and additional details that are filled in. One of them is about the Kior. Vayasa is a Kior Nechoshes. The Kior was the washing station, the Kornim had to wash their hands and the feet before and during certain parts of the Avoda. So the Kior had to be made of Nechoshes, bronze, that's Kano Nechoshes, and the spout of it in the chosh as well, the maros atzvaos, from the maros atzvaos, the shetzavu pesach all made. And now the maros atzvaos literally means the mirrors used for coloring, <clears throat> mirrors used for looking into. And apparently the kior was made from mirrors, it was made from bronze gathered <clears throat> from these mirrors. And Rashi explains that that's exactly what they were. Benos Yisrael hayu beyond the maros the Benos Yisrael had these mirrors that were made of Nechoshes, and they donated them to the Mishkan. They used to look into these mirrors, and they would beautify themselves. And these two they brought for the Nedavas of the Mishkan. When they brought them to the Mishkan, Moosei Moshe by them. And Moshe looked at them and said, that's disgusting, how could we use that for the Mishkan? And these are used for Yetzirah, a woman's attraction is something that could cause a person the wrong thoughts. A married woman, another man might look at her, etc. So how could we use this for the holiest thing for the Mishkan? And Hashem said to him quite the opposite. These are more precious to me than any other Nadav in the Mishkan. Why? Because of these mirrors, there were many, many children born. And then the Medrash Rashi goes on to quote the rest of the Medrash. The women would go out to the fields. The men would be working, back-breaking labor all day in the fields, and they couldn't even go home at night. The wives would come out to them in the fields. The men were exhausted. The women would bring these mirrors, and they would make themselves beautiful. They'd look in the mirror with their husband, and they would say, who's more beautiful, meaning look at my beauty. This would attract their husbands to them. And through that union came many, many children. Hashem said, these mirrors are the most precious. So here we have a very interesting Rashi. We have almost what sounds like polarized opposite views of the same activity. <clears throat> the women donate these mirrors, and Moshe Rabbeinu says, it's, how could I possibly use these mirrors? The mirrors are used for the Yetzirah, to make a woman more attractive. That's probably the most <clears throat> worst thing we could use for the Mishkan. And Hashem says the exact opposite. And <clears throat> these are the most precious. So the question I'd like to ask is, Moshe Rabbeinu, at this stage in his life, was on the highest level of Chokmah, the highest level of Nevoah, how could he be so off from what Hashem said to the extent that Moshe Benet says, these are the worst, these are disgusting, we can't use them, and Hashem says quite the opposite, Chavivin Alayim and these are more precious than any. And to answer this question, what I'd like to do is study this institution called marriage a little bit, and I think we might see some Chedushim in marriage that might help us better understand this Rashi. And let me begin with a Medrash Rabbah. One day a matron asked Rav Yosef Bar Chalafta, what does Hashem do since Hashem created the world? Now you have to understand, this was way before the church became popular, and many Romans understood the truth of Torah. They would try to learn what they could, and apparently there was some very wealthy, very important woman who studied to some extent, and she used to ask Rav Yosef Bar Chalafta questions. And one of the questions she asked Rav Yosef is, since Hashem created the world, what is Hashem involved in? 
So <clears throat> Rav Yosef Barchalaf answered, Hashem is mezavik zivugim. Hashem makes matches, the daughter of this one to this one, daughter of this one to this one. Says this woman to Rav Yosef Barchalaf, that's what Hashem does, I could do that. It's easy to do. Rav Yosef Barchalaf says, if you think it's easy, you should know that to Hashem it's as difficult as Kriyas Yamsov. Rav Yosef Barchalaf left. This matron took it as a challenge. She had a thousand slaves. That night she matched up 500 male slaves with 500 women slaves. She made 500 matches. And she said, look, it's not hard at all. The next day she comes to her estate and she sees her slaves. This one has a black eye. This one's limping. This one has a bandage. What happened to you? That woman you gave me, that man you gave me, that woman you gave me. And this woman comes running to Rav Yosef Berchalafta, Toraschah Emes, your Torah is Emes, your God is true, everything you've said to me is true. Says Rav Yosef Berchalafta, isn't that what I told you? If you think making matches are easy, you should, should know that to Hashem it's as difficult as Kriyash Yamsuf. Okay, there are many lessons for us to learn from this Medrash, but let me share with you what I consider the most obvious one. And that is that making matches is not so simple. And in fact, if you really think about it, I sincerely believe that no marriage should work. And I'll explain to you why. If you have a successful business, I have some advice for you. Get talent. Hire talent. You can't possibly have all the skills. You can't possibly have all the faculties you need. So if you find yourself in a position with a growing successful business, hire talent. Bring in marketing talent. Bring in accounting talent. And bring in whatever talent you need, but whatever you do, don't bring in a partner. Because almost every partnership ends. It might be five years, it might be ten years. And the only thing worse than bringing in a partner is bringing in a family member as a partner, because then when it ends, it's very, very ugly. Now here's the point. When you take two men and ask them to share their nine-to-five It's rare that that partnership is going to last more than 5 years, 10 years, 20 years at the most. I want to take the business this way, you want to take it that way, you feel the overseas market is a place to go, I feel domestic. Invariably, there's going to be differences of opinions, and no matter how much aligned they were in the beginning, it's only a matter of time till most partnerships end, and typically they don't end in a very pretty way at all. Here's the point. All you're doing is asking two people who have the same vision to share their nine to five, and it's very rare for that partnership to last more than 10 years, 15 years, 20 years at the most. But when you ask a man and a woman to get married, you're not asking them to share their nine to five. You're asking them to do everything they do together. From the moment they get up in the morning till they go to sleep at night, how they raise the kids, how they bring their family up, the culture of the home, where they vacation, if they vacation, everything that they do, you're asking them to do together. And the odds of that union succeeding really aren't great. But if you're not yet impressed with that fact, let me share with you one more simple observation. Men and women are vastly different. Men and women are different in the way they behave, they relate the way they communicate, their interests, their desires, what matters to them, their value systems. As a matter of fact, men and women are so different that you would assume that they come from different cultures, different planets, maybe different universes. And let me share with you a simple observation. Daniel Goleman, in his book Emotional Intelligence, writes about a study of public school children. They took a group of public school children 
And at three years of age, they asked them the following question, name your best friend. The boys, they asked the boys to name a best friend. About 50% of the boys named the girl as his best friend. They asked the girls. About 50% of the girls named a boy as her best friend. Same group of children when they were five years of age. They asked the boys. Only 20% of the boys named a girl as his best friend. And only 20% of the girls named a boy as her best friend. Same group of children when they were seven years old. Not a single boy mentioned the girl as his best friend. Not a single girl mentioned the boy as her best friend. Now why is that? Because when children are two, three years old, they're in the juvenile stage, they play together nicely, but as they mature, they go into different worlds. They have different interests, different things that they're involved in, different things that they enjoy doing. And at five years of age, they're no longer so similar. At seven years of age, they're playing totally different games, involved in totally different activities, and they no longer share that much in common. If you're not sure that I'm right, go to a public school. Go to a public school yard during recess. The classes are all mixed, yet you'll see the boys on one side of the yard playing rough-and-tumble games, and you'll see the girls jump rope, hopscotch, but the two groups don't mix that much. But why? Because they have different interests, different things of fun. They have totally different ways of viewing things, and they really very, very dissimilar. But here's the observation. As children get older, those dissimilarities don't become less. They become far greater. And when boys and girls are 12 years of age, 14 years of age, 16 years of age, those differences become larger and larger. Here's the point. Take a young man who's 24 years of age, a young woman who's 23 years of age. They've each been brought up in their own home with their own way of doing things. They're each mature people with a full-developed lifestyle. And you ask them to now come together and live in peace and harmony, even though they're so unalike in nature, even though they're so opposite in nature, and you ask them now to mold their entire life together and live in peace and harmony forever and ever and ever. And if you think about it, not a single marriage should last. Every marriage should end very quickly and very badly. But clearly, that's not what Hashem wants. Hashem wants marriages to succeed. And to allow marriages to succeed, Hashem gave us many tools to allow that couple to create a connection, to create a bond. Now, John Gottman is a marriage researcher, marriage therapist, and he has a study. He's able to tell with 94% accuracy whether a couple will be divorced within five years or not. And he explains the system. He brings them into the lab, and he asks them to have a conversation on three different topics. <clears throat> one is a neutral topic. One is a topic maybe about sports or something of politics. And the other is a hot topic, something that they typically argue about. He watches everything about the couple. He videotapes it, <clears throat> measures their respiration, measures their pulse rate. He's watching very, very carefully. But he explains that he's looking for one thing, contempt. Now, contempt is not quite hatred, not quite anger. It's that kind of rolling of the eyes. And he says if he sees one sign of contempt without five positive signs opposite that, that couple is headed to trouble. But do you know why? Because the glue of a marriage is love. If there's a bond of love, if there's a connection, then my way, your way, we find a way. 
But if that bond of love begins to disintegrate in a very short time, that couple are going to be headed to very serious trouble. You see, contempt is the opposite of love. And what John Gottman is underscoring is the fact that the glue of a marriage is love. You see, Hollywood got it 100% right, but backwards. In the world of Hollywood, we fall in love, we got married. We fall out of love, we got unmarried. Love comes, love goes, the mystery of life. When I'm looking for the right one, love has nothing to do with that criteria. When I'm looking for my bashert, I'm looking for the one that Hashem designed, that Hashem deemed appropriate for me. In that determination, love has nothing to do with the equation. But in your marriage, if you don't build, foster, and maintain a very powerful bond of love, well, guess what? You're going to find yourself in a very, very difficult place in a very short time. Because the absolute core essence of a successful marriage is love with one more component, and that's respect. If you have love and respect in your marriage, all the issues of your marriage, somehow things work out. But if there isn't love and there isn't respect in the marriage, then in a very short time, things are going to wither. But here's another mistake the world makes. Love doesn't just come. Love doesn't just happen. Hashem gave us many tools that bond. The first tool most young couples are familiar with, something called infatuation. He looked in her eyes, she looked in her eyes, and whoosh, they were infatuated. The violins began playing the drugs went off in their brain, and they were in la-la land in a different place. Infatuation doesn't take work, but infatuation has a shelf life. It's made to last six months, maybe a year, and then it evaporates. It's kind of like the sulfur on a kitchen match. You strike the sulfur, and it lights up, but then the wood has to catch. Infatuation is a temporary state, but it's going to last just a short amount of time, and once it leaves, that's when the couple has to get to work. And once that temporary state of infatuation leaves, if the couple aren't really working on the bond of connection, the bond in love, in a very short time, they're going to find themselves in different parts of the universe. And this is what I call the first of the ten really dumb mistakes that very smart couples make. They mistake infatuation for love. You see, somewhere after the wedding, maybe six months after, he or she, sometimes both of them, wake up one morning and say, Oh my goodness. Oh my gosh, I made the biggest mistake in my life. I married the wrong one. And it's true that they're making a mistake, but not that they married the wrong one. They mistook infatuation for love. Infatuation is instant. Love takes work. Infatuation just happens. Love takes an awful lot of commitment. And Hashem gave us many, many tools to create that bond of love. One is infatuation, but that's temporary, it's easy. The next one is attraction. The next one is appreciation. There's friendship. There's physical touch. There's intimacy. These are all tools that create that ultimate bond of love. Not romantic love only in the sense of romantic love for love's sake, but true love, true giving. Romance is an important tool, but it's a tool. The ultimate goal is a bond, a connection, a love. And one of the important tools to be used is attraction. A man has to look attractive to his wife, and maybe even more importantly, a woman has to look attractive to her husband. Sometimes women get a bit uncomfortable with that, because when you're 25, you may be very attractive, 
But what about 35? What about a 45? What about at 65? I guarantee a woman doesn't look like at 65 like she did at 25. <clears throat> but there's a Gemara that tells us, Chain Isha Hashem places a special chain in a man's heart for his wife. She has to make herself look attractive. She has to do her best. <clears throat> but if she does her job and he does his job, he keeps his eyes where they're supposed to be and not at other places. There's a special chain, a special attraction, and she finds favor in, her, in his eyes. And I believe that's exactly the answer to this Rashi. You see, Moshe Rabbeinu didn't make a mistake. Moshe Rabbeinu understood the power of attraction. Attraction is a very powerful tool. It could be used properly. It could be used improperly. Many times if a woman uses it improperly and she attracts other men, or men look where they're not supposed to be looking, it's a very powerful tool that can create a tremendous amount of damage. But when used properly in the context of a marriage, it's holy, it's proper. Moshe Rabbeinu understood the power of attraction to connect. What he didn't know was that these women used that power of attraction appropriately, properly, and that's what Hashem said, these maros, these mirrors, are the most holy of all the gifts. But why? Because these women use that attraction properly. They use those mirrors to beautify themselves to their husband, and to create more of a bond, to create more of a connection. Says Hashem, that is the most holy of it. Moshe Rabbeinu understood the power. Moshe Rabbeinu did not understand how pure these women were, and Hashem revealed them to him. And I believe this is a tremendous concept that begs understanding properly. You see, the world at large does not understand marriage, and does not understand the tools that bond, and they don't understand what a good marriage needs. And the very first ingredient in a successful marriage is the bond of love, the connection, the attachment. And this is one of the biggest mistakes that many unsuccessful couples make. I'll share with you the story. I get the phone call. It sounds something like this. Rabbi, um, I want to thank you for taking the call. I, I have a problem. What's the problem? problem is my husband. What's up? Well, he's a good guy. Um, he learns. He davens. He spends time with the, with the kids. He's responsible. I said, well, so far it sounds pretty good. What's the problem? The problem is, the problem is I don't love him. I don't love him. So what do you do? What do you do when a woman is married for 10 years, has five kids, and she says the words, I don't love my husband? So what do you say? So I say what I always say. I say to a madam, tell me, in the past month, how many times have you and your husband gone out? When I say go out, I don't mean to bar mitzvah to wedding. How many times the past month have you and your husband gone out to be together, to bond, to connect? I wait for the answer. The answer is we haven't. Okay. The month before, how many times did you go out? We didn't. The month before that, we didn't. The month before that, we didn't. By about eight or nine, I stop, and then I'll say, Madam, don't you understand? You're not connecting. You're not bonding. If you're not going to spend time with your husband, if you're not going to spend time in a romantic setting, well, guess what? You're going to find yourselves drifting apart, and that bond, that connection is going to weaken, and the glue to a marriage is love. And this, I claim, is the second of the ten really dumb mistakes that very smart couples make. They stop working on the love in the marriage. They stop working on that connection, and it doesn't matter how aligned you are. It doesn't matter how much you share the same hashkafas, the same outlooks in life, and it doesn't matter how much you love your family. If you're not going to bond, if you're not going to connect, if you're not going to spend time together as a couple, 
guess what? You're going to drift apart and you're going to find yourselves in very different places. And by the way, it's not just going out once a week. It's the love notes, it's the gifts, it's the little little signs, little trinkets, it's the phone calls, it's the texts, it's all the things that a couple in love need to be doing on a constant basis. A married couple should be having an ongoing love affair, but it's a love affair. That means to say there may be times that it waxes and wanes, there are going to be times of greater closeness and not, but at the end of the day, you're constantly working on the bond, and this is the key to a successful marriage. The glue of a marriage is the love. If it isn't there, all bets are off. But it's not the only thing necessary. There are a few other tools to a successful marriage, and that requires a deeper understanding. You see, there are really three pillars to a successful marriage. There's commitment, there's love, and there's learning to live together. Commitment comes from the fact that I know Hashem determined the right one for me. The daughter of so-and-so to so-and-so, 40 days before I was put into this world, Hashem determined the exact match for me, the best match for me. The commitment to the marriage comes from a clear understanding that I may not know exactly what I need, but Hashem does. I may not have a clear understanding of where I'm going to be five years from now, ten years from now, but Hashem does, and Hashem chose for me the perfect match for me to go through life with. That's the commitment. Love in the marriage requires constant work, constant rejuvenating, constant reattachment, and constant focus. But it's the third pillar that causes a lot of trouble. You see, there are many couples who are very committed to each other, and they do love each other, but they can't live together. And learning to live together is one of the great secrets of life. But you see, learning to live together requires making space for another human being, understanding that there are different ways of doing things, understanding that there are different approaches to life, understanding that the way I view things is not necessarily the only way, and it certainly may not be the way my spouse views things. And when you understand that, you're able to open yourself up to another person, and to join together another person's life. And many, many people get stuck in this place. They're not able to open up. And I'd like to share with you a very important observation. If I were to ask you, what are the two most important words in your marriage? Let's say I would ask you that question. What are the two most important words in your marriage? Now, many people say, thank you, maybe I'm sorry, maybe yes, dear, maybe uh I was wrong. Now, by the way, I was wrong is probably the most difficult words for us human beings to say. But all of those words, while they're important, are not the most important words in your marriage. The two most important words in your marriage are the words, that's strange. That's strange. Why would a good guy, a tolerant guy, a considerate guy, do something so inconsiderate, so callous, and so cruel. That's strange. Why would a level-headed, intelligent woman go nuts? That's strange. You see, when you say the words, that's strange, you open yourself up to the scientific curiosity of beginning to understand someone else's life. You begin to open your mind to someone else's reality. And the simple fact that what I experience is my experience, but that doesn't mean that you experience the same thing, 
is something that seems to be very difficult for us human beings to get. Elizabeth Newton earned a PhD from Stanford University for a very clever experiment. She created two groups of people. One she called tappers, the other she called listeners. She made a list of about 25 popular songs, and the tapper's job it was to tap out the beat of that song, and the listener's job was to guess. She gave out the cards, she asked the tappers to tap out the song, and asked the listeners to guess the, uh, to guess the niggin. Okay, now here's what she found. Only 2.5% of the time did the listeners ever guess the right song. And if you think about it, it's pretty obvious why. Because when you tap out a song, Happy Birthday, Star Spangled Banner, whatever the song may be, it's very difficult to, from that tapping, figure out what the song is. But that's not the clever part of the experiment. She asked the tappers, what are the odds that the listener is going to get it? At least 50%. Person after person, at least 50-50. And you can watch the videotapes. And the tapper's tapping out the song, and the listener doesn't get it, and the tapper's like incredulous. How could you not get that? That's so obvious. But I'd like to explain to you why she earned the PhD for this experiment. Because you see, when you tap out the song, you can't help but play it in your mind. And when you play it in your mind, it's so obvious, it's so clear, how can you not get it? And what she underscored with this experiment is something that we're all guilty of. We become mind blind. We assume that the way I feel is the way everyone feels. What I understand is the way everyone understands things. If I know something, then surely my spouse knows it. And understanding that my experience doesn't define reality is a very difficult lesson for us to learn. And this is what I call the fifth of the ten really dumb mistakes that very smart couples make. And they assume that their experience defines reality, but it's not true at all. And I'll share with you two examples. One is a small example, but the other is far larger. To this day, on a Shabbos morning, typically what will happen is I get up very early and the house is quiet. That's when I learn. It's very nice. And later on in the morning, I'll bring my wife a coffee. We're now married, Baruch Hashem, 35 years. As a matter of fact, today is our 35th anniversary. Um, and what still amazes me is that almost every Shabbos, this happens to me, as I'm preparing my wife's coffee, I reach for the creamer. Because everyone knows the creamer and the coffee taste so much better. And as I'm about to reach for the creamer, I have to stop and instead take out the skim milk. Because my wife doesn't like a coffee with creamer. But at least 4% full milk? No, she doesn't like it. And to this day I have to stop because I know that coffee tastes so much better with, with full fat milk at least, but surely creamer. But understanding that she doesn't like a coffee that way to this day is still hard. And again, that's a small example, but I'll share with you a much bigger example that I find to be very, very common. Here's a story. And by the way, this is about Amaisa Shahaya. Fellow's married about six months. He comes home from Yeshiva, Kola, six thirty at night, and put he's about to put his key into the door, and he says to himself, Ah, Baruch Hashem, I married such a grounded, sober girl, not one of these flighty dames. Ah, Chazdi Hashem. He opens the door, walks into his apartment, and sees his wife on the chair screaming, ah, ah, What is it, dear? What is it? Ah, what, 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 what is it? What? 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 
a cockroach, a what, a cockroach. Sees the bug, walks over to it, steps on it, and says, uh, you can come down now, dear. <clears throat> flighty, not a flighty name, huh? Sober, huh? says to himself. Okay, he doesn't think much about it. Um, <clears throat> life goes on. Two weeks later, he's in the base medrash. He doesn't even take a cell phone into the base medrash. He's a masmid. And uh, <clears throat> someone brings a phone over to him and says, uh, David, uh, your wife's on the phone. I don't know David, what, 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 what? David, what, what? Come home. Why? What's the matter? What's the matter? There, there are two of them. There are two of them. Come home, please. I can't believe it. She wants me to leave the base medrash. She wants me to stop learning to kill two bugs. He gets in his car, smokes coming out of his ears, and drive home, walks into the apartment. There she is on the chair. Where are they? Over there. He walks over, steps on both bugs, and says, I hope you're satisfied. Turns around and heads back to the base medrash. Okay, here's the question. Who was right? Who was right? Was she right? After all, she was terrified. She called her husband home to bail her out. Was he right? After all, he's learning to kill two stupid bugs. Who was right? Who was right is a very good question to ask in a court of law, maybe in a divorce court. But who was right is a poor question to ask in a marriage. A far more helpful question would be to ask what's going on. And I'll share with you a little bit of the underpinnings of this story. I have, Baruch Hashem, four daughters and two sons. I don't know why it is, but my daughters are scared of bugs and the boys aren't. As a matter of fact, when the girls were little, they would ask their baby brother to take care of the bug problem. They just had to make sure he didn't eat the bug. Okay, I don't know why it is. Girls are afraid of bugs, boys aren't. Fine. Here's the point. Right now, at this moment, she is terrified. The mistake that he's making is he's judging her based on his experience. In his experience, bugs are not scary. And bugs are little things that you step on. But guess what? In her experience, bugs are terrifying. If he were a little bit more fair, and we'd change the scene a little bit. Let's assume it's him at home, and instead of two bugs, it was two German shepherds. Would he be up on the chair? Uh-uh. He'd be out the fire escape down the block, because German shepherds are scary. But you see, he judged her based on his experience. And when you allow your experience to define reality, you're not being fair. Instead, had he said the words to himself, that's strange. Why would my wife, a grounded, sober woman, be all bent out of shape? Had he said the words, that's strange, he might have been able to climb into her world, begin to understand her world, and begin to understand things in a vastly different manner. But instead of doing that, he does what we typically do. He judged her based on his experience. He allowed his experience to define reality. And when you allow your experience to define reality, guess what? You're a very difficult person to be happily married. Because invariably, different people experience things differently, feel differently about things, relate to things differently. And I'll share with you one more difference that I find very, very telling. And on a regular basis, I get this. I've dealt with hundreds and hundreds of couples over the past 10, 15 years or so. And on a regular basis, I find communication to be a very sore spot. But let's not misunderstand something. Communication is not the thing that most people 
think it is. Let me explain to you what I mean. If I were to ask you that question, <clears throat> what is the most critical ingredient in a successful relationship? So most people would say communication. As a matter of fact, <clears throat> I believe almost all women would say that. But interestingly enough, very few men would say that. As a matter of fact, Tom Houston is a psychologist. Uh, he's actually a professor of psychology, and he did a study of 264 couples, and he asked them this question. What is the key ingredient to a successful relationship? Almost all the women said communication. Almost none of the men said communication. And this underscores a fundamental difference between men and women, and that is the need for talk, the bond created by talk, why they talk, what they talk about. And if you study men and you study women, you find that they talk about very different things in very different ways for de very different reasons. Deborah Tannen is a sociologist, and she's written a number of books defining the difference in conversation between men and women. And this is exactly her point. She says women speak to bond, to connect. Men speak to share ideas, concepts. But you see, they talk about different things in different ways for different reasons. Ironically enough, the biggest most common complaint that marriage therapists hear from women is, we never talk, we never talk. The biggest complaint that marriage therapists hear from men is, all we do is talk, 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 talk. Now, somebody's got it wrong. Either you're talking too much or you're not talking at all. What's the difference? So I'll share with you the key distinction over here. You see, women bond and connect by conversation. In fact, if you think about friendships amongst women, and generally what happens is, the way the friendship forms is, women will be kind of friendly, and then they'll be having a conversation, and one woman will express a vulnerability, maybe she's overwhelmed or she has a problem, her friend instantly knows how to respond, instantly knows how to share that, and she makes all the right listening noises, and then now that this first woman, she expressed a vulnerability, the other woman also feels that she can reciprocate, she shares something that she's vulnerable about, her new friend now immediately connects to her, <clears throat> expresses the right words, the right, and before long, a bond is formed. And typically, that's how women connect. <clears throat> they share vulnerabilities, <clears throat> share the inner world, and that's how they create the bond. Now, I've been a man for some decades now. I don't think I've ever once bonded or connected with anybody in the world by sharing my vulnerabilities, expressing my inner... It just doesn't happen that way. I love my wife. We have a great marriage. But I don't connect to her by sharing my vulnerabilities. It's not my way. It's not a male way. The only men I know who do that, there are some men who maybe have a self-image issue, a self-esteem issue, but by and large, men don't express it that way. They certainly don't bond by doing that. And here's what happens when they get married. The woman feels we're not connected. What she's looking for is connection. So what does she do? She assumes that the way to connect to her husband is the same way that she connects to her girlfriend. So she demands communication. And she says those words that every man fears. Those horrid, horrible words that he knows are about to spell doom and defeat. Those words are, honey, we need to talk. <laughs> because he knows what they mean. Those words mean he's going to get blamed He's going to be put on the chopping block. He's messing up. 
He's failing. He's not meeting her needs. But here's the problem. What she's asking from him is something that's probably not in his vernacular. And this, I believe, is the sixth of the ten really dumb mistakes that very smart couples make. They misunderstand the role of communication. Gentlemen, it's your job to learn how to talk to your wife and listen to her. Ladies, it's your job to recognize that talk may not mean to your husband the same thing that it means to your girlfriends. And it's not the only way to connect. It's not the only way to bond. Gentlemen, you have to learn how to bond through it. Ladies, you have to learn that it's not the only way. When both parties learn that part, then they can have a successful marriage. I believe this Chazal teaches us a tremendous yesod. What Moshe Rabbeinu said was, how could you use these maros? How could you use these mirrors for the key or the key is part of the Mishkan? Holiest things in creation. They're used to attract women to them. They, the Megari Yitzhara, they cause Yitzhara. What Hashem said to Moshe Rabbeinu was, no. These women use those maras properly. Why? They use them to make themselves more beautiful. You see, the truth is that attraction is one of the tools that bond. It's one of many and there are many, many tools that bond. <clears throat> one of them is attraction. Another one is appreciation. Another is friendship. Another is touch. Another is physical intimacy. But attraction is certainly one of the tools that bond. And what Moshe Rabbeinu didn't understand was that these women use that tool properly and effectively. The reason why Hashem gave us so many tools that bond is because marriage is a very difficult union. It's the most supportive and most beautiful union in the world but you're taking two very different people, two opposite people, and you're asking them to live their life together in total unison. If he's late, she's late. If he's sloppy, she feels embarrassed. You're asking them to mold two lives, but you're taking two fully formed people, two people with different lifestyles, and two people who look at things differently, two people who feel differently about things, and you're asking them to live together when any partnership between two men or two women ends, how could a marriage succeed? And to allow a marriage to succeed, Hashem gave us many tools. And one of those tools is attraction. When you use it properly, when a man looks at his wife and views her as attractive and trains his eye to see her as beautiful, when a woman makes herself beautiful to her husband, that's a powerful tool that bonds. It's one of many. The ultimate goal is love, a true connection. There are many tools that bond. One is romance. Romance is fostered. One of the things that's very critical for a couple to do is to go out regularly. Once a week, you leave the house, you go out. But that's just one of many tools in romance. And romance are gifts and notes and all the things that a couple in love is supposed to do. But that's only one of the tools that bond. Appreciation, friendship, support, physical touch, intimacy. And these are all tools that bond. But again, there are three pillars to a successful marriage. Commitment, love, and learning to live together. Commitment comes from understanding that Hashem determined the right one for me. Love in the marriage is something you build, you work on, you connect, and you make sure you use all the tools that bond. The third pillar of a successful marriage is the more difficult one, learning to live together. And many couples are committed, love each other, but cannot live together. And learning to live together requires understanding differences between human beings and especially differences between men and women. <clears throat> when you train yourself to say to yourself the words, that's strange, the next time your spouse does something, that's absolutely inexplicable. <clears throat> Why would a kind, loving man act in such a barbaric, cruel manner? Instead of reacting 
If you say to yourself the words, that's strange, you begin to open yourself up to better understand the world of your husband. When your wife does something that's absolutely inexplicable, when you say to yourself, that's strange, why would a grounded, intelligent woman get so neurotic? You begin to realize maybe she has a different emotionality. Maybe she feels things differently than you do. When you say the words to yourself, that's strange, you open yourself up to understand the world of your spouse. Understanding the world of your spouse also requires understanding the different needs between men and women. A woman needs to talk. That's how she connects. That's how she bonds. A husband has to understand that. He has to meet his wife's needs. And a wife has to understand that not all of her talking needs are going to be fulfilled within the context of a marriage. Ladies, keep your girlfriends. I was once with my wife. We were at a Shabbaton. And a Hasidish woman came over to me. And she asked me a question. I asked my wife to join because I didn't want to handle this one alone. Basically, the question was, I don't understand. When I talk to my friends and we connect, we bond, I could talk for hours. And my husband, nothing. He gives me no- I get nothing from him. The problem was she thought maybe she wasn't straight. She thought maybe there's something wrong with her that she's attracted to women. And I explained to her one very simple mechanic. And that is women bond through talk. And they create close friendships. But that doesn't mean there's something wrong with your orientation. That's a reality. And the type of friendships that you'll have with a woman, you may not have with your husband. But that doesn't mean you won't love your husband. That doesn't mean you won't be bonded to your husband. And just because your husband doesn't talk to you and doesn't share with you, doesn't mean he doesn't love you deeply and fundamentally. Many, many women say, my husband doesn't love me. He doesn't doesn't share with me, he doesn't talk to me. Ladies, I'll share with you, that's 100% true. I guarantee If you had a bad day at work, the first thing you'd want to do is share it with your husband. I also guarantee that if your husband had a bad day at work, the last thing he'd want to do is share it with anybody. When a guy has a bad day at work, he wants to go into his corner and go into his cave and just process it. But that's not the way women work. And women often make a mistake. They think their husband doesn't share with them. He doesn't love me. He doesn't care. Your husband might take a bullet for you. He might love you deeply, but he doesn't react the same way you do. He doesn't have the same needs. When you begin to climb out of your world, when you begin to understand that your experience doesn't define reality, you're able to climb into the world of your spouse. And I'd like to close with one story that I think well defines a marriage. The Shiva Zetzal was older than the Rebetzin. I learned the Chavetz Chaim Yeshiva, Rabbi Leibowitz, my Rebbe. And the Shiva was older than the Rebetzin. And for many years, the Shiva was somewhat sickly. And everyone knew what was going to happen. It was inevitable that the Shiva was going to pass away before the Rebetzin. But that's not what happened. The Rebetzin took ill. And very shortly thereafter, she passed away. And the Shiva got up to say a hesped, to say a eulogy at his wife's funeral. And he said these words. Everything we did, we did together. We built the yeshiva together. We went to Eretzral together. <clears throat> we built <clears throat> the Talmidim together. Everything we did, we did together. I didn't have to worry about my food. I didn't have to worry about my medicine. She worried about my health more than I worried about my health. Everything we did, we did together. He must have said that expression 12, maybe 14 times. And then he said these words. I said a hesped for my father. I said a hesped for my mother. I cannot say a husband for my wife. Saying a husband for my wife is like saying a husband for myself. I can't do it. And he sat down. And with those words, he defined a marriage, a bond, a unit, one unit connected 
bonded forever. It takes a lot of work. You have to understand the tools and mechanisms. You have to understand the relationship. You have to work on it. But when you do, Hashem helps. And eventually you get to that point. May Hashem give us all the bracha of Shalom Bayez, success, and atzlacha in this. And now what I'd like to do is open the floor to questions. Let me also mention, if you haven't had a chance yet to get a copy of the 10 really dumb mistakes that very smart couples make, it's available in storm stores, it's available on Amazon, it's also available on the schmooze.com. If you get it on the schmooze.com, you also get free of charge the audiobook, the ebook, as well as the Marriage Transformation Bootcamp. If you go to T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z.com, theshmooze.com, you can get it there. Baruch Hashem has been very well received. It's now sold 7,000 copies in the farm stores. It's considered now a, becoming very quickly a bestseller. I think it's, again, Baruch Hashem has been very, very well received. Um, okay, please feel free to write, type your questions in. If you're brave and you would like to raise your hand, you can certainly raise your hand and I'll call on you. Um, okay. Um, here's a question in the uh, Q&A. What's Rebbe's take on the Russian-Ukrainian war? What can we take from it? <clears throat> can it be the war of Gog or Magog? Okay, <clears throat> so the first thing we could take from it is that <clears throat> ambition and evil knows no bounds. Um, I don't really have a deep understanding of, of Putin in any sense. I'm not sure if many people do either. But it sure does seem <clears throat> like he is a very... Uh, a very driven individual, and um, and human life doesn't seem to be anywhere near as important as his own ambitions, whatever they may be. So I, I'm not going to give him the uh, Midos of the Year award. Um, is it the War of Gog and Magog? I highly, highly doubt it. The War of Gog and Magog, Rochester often would say, if you want to see the War of Gog and Magog, just look at World War II an entire world engulfed in war. And all of the atrocities described in the VM, everything described, and just open a Holocaust diary. Just read a first-person story, and you'll see everything there. So I believe the war of Gog and Magog hopefully has been long fought, and we're just waiting the cusp. We're at the edge, edge, edge of Mashiach coming. Um, and uh, so... I hope it means Hashem that that's uh, that, that we're long, long past that. But listen again, you need a novi to really know. But that's certainly my hope. Um, and please feel free if you have questions to type them in. If you'd like to raise your hand, you're certainly more than welcome to raise your hand and ask a question. If you have a question on this topic or any topic, um, yes, Malatov on 35th anniversary. Thank you. I greatly appreciate that. Um, okay. Okay. Um, okay, if you don't have questions, it's also okay. Um, again, I do want to re- highly recommend the book, The Ten Really Dumb Mistakes That Very Smart Couples Make. Um, again, you can get it on you can get it in your local farm stores. You can get it on Amazon. But again, if you get it on theschmooze.com, you'll also get the audio book, the e-book, as well as the Marriage t- Transformation Boot Camp. The audio book is good. Uh, ladies, buy the book on theschmooze.com because then you'll give the audio book to your husband. As we know, men are illiterate, or at least ADHD. They don't read, but they could play it listening in the car. The audiobook was very well done. It came out very nice. <clears throat> Baruch Hashem. So if you go to theshmuz.com, you just have to remember it's spelled T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z.com. If you go to theshmuz.com, you can get it there. And again, you'll get the audiobook, the ebook, as well as the Marriage Transformation Boot Camp as a free bonus. If you already purchased the book 
and you didn't get the audiobook or the ebook, please feel free to send me an email to rebbe at theshmooz.com, R-E-B-B-E at theshmooz.com, and I'll gladly send you a link to the audiobook and the ebook um, if you've already purchased the, uh, the book. Okay, I thank you all for listening, and I wish you a good Shabbos, and hope to see you, Mitzvah next week. Okay, thank you.